Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Hello everyone, Jewel Keeter here, and today I am back with Cheryl. First, I'd like to say Happy New Year to everybody. We're now into 2020, and we're so excited to kick the year off with this episode. We have some great new information about Canada Cannabis 2.0 and about progress in the U.S. and even some new markets that will be coming online globally soon. So as usual... We're going to follow the same format of starting with Canadian news, then progressing to progress in the U.S., and then moving into global news regarding cannabis. We're going to start with our first article, which is from Quartz, and they have done some research on the new 2.0 rollout. So according to Quartz, the new products will completely change the landscape of the market in Canada and really push it a lot closer to consumer packaged goods. It really emphasizes that brands will be able to better differentiate their identities and products in a more diverse market because there are going to be so many new product styles coming into the market. There's going to be a ton of new opportunities coming to market that haven't that have been years in the making. So a lot of these brands have been working on edible recipes or tincture recipes or oil recipes for a long time knowing that this was coming or maybe I should say hoping that this was coming. And that's what we're going to see rolling out, especially in January here in Canada. And leading the charge most likely will be Canopy Growth. They are the large Ontario-based cannabis producer, which received a $4 billion investment from Constellation Brands, the parent brand of Corona, Modelo, Robert Mondavi Wines, as well as other brands. And they received this boost of cash in 2018 in exchange for a 38% stake in the company. And so if you have billions of dollars for research and development and a partnership with one of the largest alcohol manufacturers in the world, that's a pretty likely indication that you're going to be able to create some fairly good quality and uh, cannabis drinks, especially that consumers are going to appreciate, especially if you tie in that connection to the alcohol brands that Constellation already owns. And a source that we have that has personally spoken with a VP for Aurora, according to the VP, the LPs are feeling the pressure of microcultivations, which is great news for microcultivators because they're already making an impression, even with so few up and running. And it's really more a case of perception of power of multiple micros. So why does the micro conversation tie into this conversation about uh, edibles, tinctures, and cannabis 2.0. Well, a lot of microcultivators are also very passionate about alternative ways to use the product or to ingest the product. There are many, many people who prefer not to smoke and would prefer to have it in an edible form or would prefer to have it infused into something else or even just experiences bodily pain and they want to be able to use it as an oil or a cream. And microcultivators are the perfect place for that to happen because it's like a boutique store or a restaurant 
a lot of people are very passionate about restaurants that are independently owned because the chef really brings something unique to the table. That's why independent restaurants are successful versus a chain restaurant that you know what you're going to get, but it's not always very original. And that's the same idea with micro cultivations. There's going to be a lot of opportunity to be that independent choice option in your community, in your province, in your neighborhood, and really set yourself up as the brand known for whatever your niche item or product is. I know, Cheryl, you have a lot of uh, interest in this as well for your cultivation specifically. It's it's interesting because... Since I started in the industry, I have been working with edibles, not being a smoker myself. So um, working on uh, treats, like I don't do like baked goodies, but uh, gummies and candy and caramels and things like that is is where I really uh, enjoy working. And because I'm a craft grower, uh, the whole scenario, it's, it's like comparing me to um, you know, a high-end restaurant as opposed to a McDonald's will both fill your tummy. Yes, they will. They'll both get the job done. But the uh, the experience of eating at a, a restaurant where the chef is the owner um, is a is a whole different ball game than going and eating at a McDonald's. And that's I I liken the LPs to a McDonald's type of scenario, and all the micro cultivators I liken to you know a chef-owned restaurant. It's really that corporate cannabis is mm-hmm. what the LPs are yes. getting into versus privately owned labels of cannabis that would be micro cultivations. So moving on to our next part of the conversation regarding, again, LPs versus micro cultivations. So according to Times columnist, the premier John Horgan said he wants British Columbia to take better advantage of the province's worldwide reputation as a producer of top-notch award-winning weed known pretty much globally as BC Bud. I remember being in Amsterdam, and this is a quote directly from John Horgan. I remember being in Amsterdam and seeing all of the BC Bud Awards that were being given out at a time when the product was illegal. And it's ironic that we seem to be having more Ontario product being distributed in BC through the legal market. And this is, again, according to John Horgan. We in BC have a legendary product, and that's not making its way to the legal market. He said he doesn't want to see the bloom fall off on BC Bud, which is why the province is looking to introduce initiatives that support the talents of pot growers and merchants in the legal market. Last month, the BC government provided $675,000 to help cannabis operators in the Kootenays overcome the barriers to operating in the legal economy. For those passionate about the issue, stay tuned, says Horgan. We're going to continue to work as best we can to ensure that the consuming public gets a quality, safe product and that we reap the benefits that we can of having a long tradition of cultivating cannabis in BC. But Ted Smith, a longtime Victoria area marijuana activist who participated in challenges of previous cannabis laws in the Supreme Court of Canada and won, said BC has allowed large-scale corporate marijuana producers to dominate the market. They're destroying the whole concept of BC Bud with what they've done. This is according to Ted Smith. If they were interested in helping, they would not only have done a lot more to make sure that small growers could easily get licenses, but they also would be having coffee shops and places where people could come and smoke the product. And 
So we all know that cannabis is better when it's grown with attention and passion, which is why craft cannabis is known to be better. And it can be a challenge for small growers to get licensed because the process is confusing and vague, whereas LPs have resources to dedicate to specific staff to work on the licensing process. And craft cultivators don't necessarily have the option of repurposing their time or the time of their staff towards licensing. But if you are somebody who has seen the difference between uh, corporate cannabis production and craft cannabis production, then you know that it's it's the difference between, like Cheryl was just saying, between McDonald's and a privately chef-owned restaurant. The quality is better, partially because the people involved are committed to the product, not just the bottom line, but also because they know what they're doing. The same way that if you were going to open a winery, you wouldn't just go and wing it yourself. You'd, you'd do the research. You'd bring in people who knew more. You would learn from other people who've been doing it for several years. And then you would open your doors as a craft business. And that's really what's happening here is the reputation of BC Bud is essentially being harmed because they have allowed corporatization to come in and bring funds that are giving people jobs and stimulating the economy, but not necessarily doing overall good for the economy. It's a short-term gain as opposed to a long-term reputation play. I completely agree. The, uh, it, there's no there's no two ways about it. The reputation of BC Bud and a grower from the Kootenays is world-renowned. And for BC to be allowing corporations to come in there and not support the local growers um, is shameful. Like they, in my opinion, should be supporting the, and I guess they are, you know, dedicating $670,000. From my understanding, they're looking for 100 growers to help them get legal through the process with $67,000 each. And... <clears throat> $67,000 for a grower is substantial when you think that they've already got their lights, they've already got their facility, they've already got, you know, their contacts, they've already got all their uh, their tables and all the gear they need. So the $67,000 could be used just to get the license. I think it's really more of an initiative payment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that would incentivize them to go legal versus having to continue to operate in a gray or black market. Correct. That yeah. $60,000 is basically just saying, look, we want you in the legal market, so we're going Supporting to help it. you. Yeah. And I've talked to some of the, the Kootenai growers, and, and they want to go legal too. They they see the writing on the wall that the black market's going to get pinched tighter and tighter and tighter. And so a lot of the Kootenai growers that I've talked to do want to go legal. And the black market is... It's never going to disappear entirely, but it is going to get so tight that the margins aren't going to be there to make any money. It's just like any black market. Uh, once things go legal, like now nobody wants to buy bootleg moonshine because you can get alcohol and you have so many more options in a legal market versus what a an alcohol black market would be now and that's exactly what's going to happen with cannabis as well it's just not there yet i don't think you're going to see um the black market survive i think it's going to go the way of moonshine and and i mean nobody drinks bathtub gin nobody drinks shine anymore that because you know it's a regulated industry and it's safer to to buy from the liquor stores than it is to buy from you know some shady guy that's got a still out in the woods 
Well, that would be the hope that there's a, a medium struck between, you know, the government stopping this bottleneck action they they have been doing in terms of getting people licensed and then the black market fading into obscurity because it's just not necessary anymore that would be the ideal situation for sure yeah according to the financial post there has been an ontario cannabis boom uh ontario was the largest retailer of the most cannabis of any province in the first year following legalization even though there are only one online store and 24 brick-and-mortar stores open for most of that period, according to Statistics Canada. Ontario accounted for $217 million in recreational cannabis sales, or 24% of the overall Canadian market from October 2018 to September 2019, followed closely by Alberta and Quebec, which sold respectively $196 million and $195 million dollars worth of cannabis the year following legalization has seen more than 400 brick and mortar stores established across the country total adult use cannabis sales from online retail stores amounted to 908 million for that period which falls short of many estimates prior to legalization and the stats canada data observed a sharp decline in the number of consumers who purchased online in tandem with the growth of the number of retail stores across the country. The share of online sales declined from 43.4% in October 2018 to just 5.9% the following September, while the number of brick-and-mortar stores rose 88% between March and July 2019. Statistics Canada attributes these vast differences to varying access of cannabis stores. In Ontario, for instance, just 9% of residents live within a 3-kilometer distance to a cannabis store, Whereas in Alberta, the province with the highest number of stores, 50% of residents live within three kilometers of a cannabis store. So earlier in that article, it discussed that people think that this is a, it's not hitting the mark of what they estimated that the sales would be prior to legalization. And that is because it says it right here in this article. That's because there were not enough retail options for consumers. We have said this in previous episodes, and we will continue to say it until something changes. The bottlenecking issue is happening at retail. People don't have access. So that means that all of the new potential consumers want an experience where they can go in and get educated on what they're buying prior to purchasing online. And that evidence can be displayed in any other market. Before we had online sales, there was only exclusively in-store retail shopping. And so people became familiar with the products that they regularly wanted to purchase. So then it wasn't a hard switch to go from buying Tide at your grocery store to buying Tide on Amazon because you knew what you were getting and Amazon made the process easier. It's exactly the same with cannabis. People aren't familiar enough with the product yet. People haven't used, you know, people who used cannabis quite casually or in a very limited scope still want to learn more about what they're ingesting. They want to know that it's safe. They want to know if there's a strain that's better for them than something else because of all this new data that we've received. So ultimately, imagine if Ontario had the hundreds of stores that Alberta has, especially with Ontario being the province that sold the most. When you consider the fact that online sales declined when physical stores are present and available, it just supports the fact that Ontario could have hit those marks if more physical retail options had been available. The lottery system that they went with did not work. 
it was not a great idea for rolling out. They should have realized that it was an issue earlier on and realized that people need education, not just the option to purchase, but that they're more likely to purchase once they are educated about the product. And it allows them to enter into the cannabis tourism market, similar to a winery tour, the way that they have in California or in Champaign, France, and the Niagara region tours or Sonoma, all of these things could be a part of tourism, not just an aspect of retail. So really, all of that could have been curbed if they had just rolled out the program differently and allowed more retail options. But what this is saying is that when there are more retail options, the mark can be hit. It just has to be accessible. It's an accessibility issue for people. I think when uh, <clears throat> one other, you're going to get to this later on, but there are other countries that are watching us and already are improving on the rollout that Canada has done. And so as we modify the program to get the cannabis from the grower to the user, there will be other countries that will be watching what we do and adopt whatever it is that works or doesn't work for uh, for the Canadian market. And that is the hazard of being first. It's better to be first and make a few missteps yep. as long as they're not... Eh. Catastrophic, for sure, right. yeah. Then it's easier to be the first out of the gates mm -hmm. and learn as you go, but you have to be quick to adapt. And that's, that's what we're seeing now with the option of... <clears throat> allowing cultivators to have a facility within their cultivation where people can come and purchase and that legislation being rolled out hopefully in the early spring here that's definitely going to make a big difference because it's also it's right from seed to sale literally there's no middleman where there could be cross-contamination where there could be diversion of the product it's going from the grower who should be doing things morally and ethically, right to the consumer, which is just a better flow of business for everybody involved. Well, and you're cutting out the middleman too. So there's, you know, if if micros in the initial uh, rollout were supposed to sell to an LP, well, the LP is going to mark that product up and, and then in turn, the end user has to pay a higher price for the for the product. So it just makes sense to go straight from the grower to the user. And that's why people have been complaining that legal cannabis is so much more expensive than the black market. Well, that's because everybody wants, wants a piece their of cut the of action. it, yeah. and then you add the taxes on, and yeah. before you know it, it's it's cost prohibitive, especially yeah. for people who need it. Whereas if you were able to purchase directly from the grower, the cultivator, and in a small business sense, then it supports the local economy, right. it makes the prices lower, it's more accessible, and it creates community. All of which are assets to any community, any country, as we move forward globally. So now we're going to go into the U.S. market. And according to uh, our previous source from early in the article, Quartz, at the federal level, the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking, or SAFE Act, and the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, more, which we have touched on in previous episodes, are making their way through the House and Senate. The SAFE Act, which passed a House vote in September, would allow cannabis companies to access banking and financial services they currently cannot due to federal prohibition. And so in a previous episode, we talked about how the MORE Act is at this point uh, has not been voted. 
on it's been passed over because it was associated with other things and because the Senate does determined that it wasn't uh, a high priority for them. But the SAFE Act is something that is both actually are, are still viable in the sense that they can be revived. And that's why it's important to know about the progress that is happening in the U.S. So the SAFE Act would allow cannabis companies and banking and financial services, and that's a real lifeline for the industry. The new cannabis companies would gain access to business loans rather than having to dole out equity in exchange for private investment. While the impeachment process has slowed progress, it has also given lobbyists more time to win over potential support from Senate Republicans. The Moore Act would decriminalize the plant and offer an avenue for people charged with or convicted of some cannabis-related crimes to expunge their records and further avoid penalties, but it stands little chance in the GOP-controlled Senate. Of course, if either piece of legislation got passed, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who opposes legalization, they'd also have to get the signature of the current president. And said president has opposed legalization legislation in the past, but in an election year, that is up for debate, as almost everything is. So what is all of this saying? Well, we've we've talked about the MORE Act, we've talked about the SAFE Act before, and ultimately, while they haven't been passed, they're not dead. They can be revived, they can be revisited. But what we can all agree on is it's time for the U.S. to legalize. Let's just say that. In terms of economic revenue and tax money, that would be a great asset for the U.S. It also would prevent different legislation in 50 different states all across the country. One federal decision would be much easier. So even if the federal government planned a state-by-state rollout with a federal tax, that would still be better than a patchwork with no options of going from state to state, which is kind of where the U.S. is at currently. There are some states where it's recreationally legal, some states where it's medically legal, some states where neither is legal, and all in between you have these states where you can't cross the borders carrying said product, even if it's a medical need. And that's really, that's kind of the the state of the U.S. at this point. But in the next article uh, from OC Register, there are lawsuits going on where people are making the case for why certain cannabis businesses uh, should be able to operate. And I've gotten several questions about delivery businesses in the cannabis industry recently. And to be perfectly clear, it's still a gray area, ironically being perfectly clear, uh, but it is something that there's still a lot of questions around. Is it classed as a retail facility or is it a middleman, like a food delivery service? Would it be the Uber of cannabis? Well, that's going to be determined, at least for some people in California. So according to the OC Register, in April of 2019, one county and 24 cities sued the California Bureau of Cannabis Control over a rule that permits marijuana delivery throughout the state, even in communities that don't allow cannabis businesses. That case pitting advocates for access to legal access to legal cannabis against local governments fighting for control over the industry is finally going to trial in Fresno County Superior Court starting on, no joke, April 20th. And cannabis can do a lot for people with chronic illness or pain, but compassionate pricing options, that's what it's called here in Canada when you have special pricing for people who are in need, but not in a financial position to meet uh, a pricing standard, there's still soon going to be something similar for Californians. 
There will be three new marijuana laws to take effect Wednesday, January 1st. Senate Bill 34 will let licensed businesses donate products for medical marijuana to patients in need. Assembly Bill 37 will let cannabis operators deduct expenses, a standard business practice that's been blocked due to federal law. And Assembly Bill 1810 makes it illegal for passengers in limos, taxis, and other commercial vehicles to consume cannabis, though they can still drink alcohol, effectively ending any hopes of cannabis party buses. Also on Wednesday, mandated industry tax hikes will hit an already struggling industry. Businesses say more legislative changes are needed if they stand a chance of competing against the thriving illicit market, with wholesale cannabis prices expected to fall in the coming year. There are calls for a potential overhaul to the tax structure, and with shops allowed in just 20% of California cities, there's talk of trying to force cities with residents that support Proposition 64 to allow marijuana business in their borders. Also in the wake of the vape-relating crisis that in 2019 killed at least 54 people and left another 2,500 with serious lung injuries, new state or federal laws governing the vape sector are expected. And we've already discussed the fact that more and more states are planning to legalize, as we've discussed in previous episodes, but it does give California more power in the federal government to push the agenda of legalization forward. So the more uh, legalized counties and areas in California that come on board, the more it's going to be possible for a market as large as California, which is one of the largest economies in the world, to put the pressure on the federal government to make something happen in the sense that the commerce is just going to get trickier and trickier until we have an overall legislation that everybody can agree on. And more states are eyeing legalization because of California's decisions and progress forward. Licensed cannabis shops will open for the first time in Illinois starting today, January 1st, making it the 11th state to legalize recreational marijuana and the first to do so through legislature. But in the coming years, as many as six more states are expected to consider legalizing cannabis through the legislature led by Vermont, which legalized cannabis possession in 2018, New Mexico and New York, and another 12 states could vote in November on legal cannabis, including Arizona, New Jersey, Ohio and Florida. That will give California's legal industry more clout as it pushes for federal reforms. If you want more information on how you can get involved in the legalization in any of those states, you can check out our previous episode where we touch on all the states that currently have uh, legislation or party groups that you can sign petitions for to make your voice heard. And so now we're going to touch on what Cheryl was saying earlier about the global market and how other countries are in the process or have already begun legalization legislation. Uh, And again, uh, we've looked at the legislation and a lot of it is very similar to Canada with a few changes because we were the first to roll it out uh, federally across the nation. So Israel allows cannabis import and export, uh, but it's not... um, While it has been legislated, it hasn't been passed because of the political climate in Israel right now. Currently, Israel can technically export cannabis, and this is all according to Forbes, but only after meeting their domestic demand. The Ministry of Health announced in November that it will allow the importation of cannabis to Israel to ease the significant shortage that existed in the market. Compounding the quagmire was not having enough medical cannabis available domestically for patients, let alone for export abroad. The nation's largest producer, being shut down by the government, further complicated the matter. 
Despite these recent steps forward, some feel that the export of Israeli-grown cannabis will still not be an imminent driver of market growth, but that Israel's medical, agricultural, and scientific know-how will continue to be the legacy of the Israel cannabis contribution. So this is exactly what happens when a government doesn't prioritize the new cannabis industry. We're fortunate to be in Canada where the government is being very proactive about the rollout of this new market. But Israel had a head start because of all the work they had done to advance the knowledge of what cannabis can do. A lot of the scientific research of cannabis has come out of Israel. But now, however, its ability to export has been put on hold, which is detrimental to their ability in the current market of exporting, importing, really being part of the cannabis community globally. And as I said, it's really just because of their political climate at the moment where it's sort of stuck in legislation and uh, while they want to begin exporting and potentially importing, they can't until that legislation is clarified and uh, political issues change. Israel will, however, continue to be a leader in the scientific study of cannabis because they already had a head start in that area and they will continue to do the same kind of research, uncovering more and more about what this plant can really do. But I think, Cheryl, you can really attest to the fact that the Canadian government is fairly proactive when it comes to assisting LPs, especially microcultivators, in getting things rolling out. So they are making an effort. I have found that the uh, that Health Canada, and if you're a member of any groups online, um, a lot of people bash Health Canada for their um, the way they're rolling these microcultivators licenses out I have nothing but praise for them I think they're doing a great job I think um, it, it's a new business for them it's a new business for us and yes there are um, there's areas of improvement there's there's roadblocks and stumbling places that need to be ironed out but by and large I think they're doing a great job and they're they're not only trying to get a lot of people licensed, but they are trying to protect the public while they're doing it. So I'm all in favor for everything Health Canada. Um, you know, it took me a long time to get mine, but I really appreciate um, it. It's made me a better cultivator. It's made me a better business person. And I know that the product that I provide is grown in a very safe and ethical manner. And part of that is because Health Canada has made me meet certain standards. And also the fact that they are responsive, that things yes. don't get there. It is slower because there is so much interest from people uh, in terms of application processes. But a lot of that has to do with the way that the application goes in. If your application is clear and concise, then things tend to move a lot faster. Yes. And that's not just Health Canada. That's just government operations in general. But it is very nice to be somewhere where it's your uh, progress isn't locked up through legislation that we actually have the opportunity to make changes and move forward. According to MJ Daily, Bermuda is getting into the cannabis industry. Maybe. Bermuda released the draft legislative blueprint to establish a domestic medical cannabis industry, which attorney Kathy Simmons, attorney general Kathy Simmons said would create business opportunities for local enterprises and attract international investment. 
The government is inviting the public to submit feedback on the proposed medicinal cannabis bill and corresponding medicinal cannabis licensing regulations. The proposed law and regulations were released together, giving the small country an advantage over competing jurisdictions that sometimes see a lag between a law's approval and when required regulations are introduced. In a statement, Simmons said that the government of the British overseas territory will review and analyze the feedback before the bill and regulations are introduced in the legislature. The proposals set up the legislative framework to build a viable domestic medicinal cannabis industry in Bermuda. Private enterprise and free market forces will determine over time the size and economic benefits of such an industry. The laws propose creating a medicinal cannabis authority which would regulate licensing for cultivation, import and export, manufacturing, research and development, and transport. And we're just going to keep seeing more and more countries making legislative moves towards a cannabis industry of their own. It allows for tax revenues, but it also pushes out the black market, which exists in almost every country around the globe, just because there's a demand for it and it's not legal. So if it's legalized, then the government can benefit from it. The nation can benefit benefit from it, both from a tax standpoint, but also you're pushing out the dangerous aspects of a black market when you encourage and allow for legal use of cannabis, something that we've determined uh, isn't isn't a huge, it isn't any more dangerous than alcohol to citizens. If anything, it might be less dangerous than so. And so for that reason, we're just going to keep seeing this kind of thing happening more and more. Probably it's going to get to the point where it's almost a daily basis where one country or another is pushing through some kind of legislation relating to a cannabis industry becoming existing in that country or in the potential of being existing in that country. And I know that you find uh, the fact that licensing in Bermuda is is coming online very interesting. So did you have anything you wanted to add, Cheryl? I read over uh, the information that they published about uh, the regulations that they're proposing and... Um, I I think I'm going to take a, a shot at getting a license too. It's it's um, very similar to the Canadian application, and uh, they're doing it to to attract investment and and create jobs, and so it would be beneficial for somebody like me to beneficial for me obviously beneficial for them to have somebody like me come in because I'm. I'm knowledgeable about the business and I'm knowledgeable about the product. So uh, I I've read it over and it is an interesting proposal that they've The put reason forward. that it would be that you would be beneficial is because you are already licensed. Yes. So they would know from the fact that you already have a licensed business up and running that you know how to meet GMP standards. And so you would be a more qualified candidate in that sense, just from that perspective. And also, Trinidad and Tobago are considering doing their own cannabis industry. And this is again from MJ Daily. A proposed law to establish the legal footing for a medical marijuana industry in Trinidad and Tobago was referred to a parliamentary committee earlier this month after overcoming a key vote in the House of Representatives. The committee will consider and report on the general merits of the Cannabis Control Bill before issuing a final report by February 29th, 2020. That will set the stage for a third and final vote in the House soon after. If approved, the bill would pave the way for a regulatory control of medical cannabis and establishment of the Trinidad and Tobago Cannabis Licensing Authority. 
two key planks for a sustainable marijuana industry. Under the proposed law, the Trinidad and Tobago Cannabis Licensing Authority would be responsible for granting and revoking business licenses, establishing the terms and conditions of those licenses, inspecting and monitoring and assessing the handling of cannabis, ensuring compliance, establishing and maintaining a register of licensees. Licenses would be available for medical, therapeutic, or scientific purposes for cultivation, processing, retail, import, export, and transport. Like other European nations, Trinidad and Tobago would have strict residency requirements for license holders requiring them to be citizens, permanent residents, or a citizen of a Caribbean community member state. And that last part is so interesting because people realize how lucrative and uh, dynamic the cannabis industry is. And so what Trinidad and Tobago has done there is made it so that they're going to build their cannabis industry from the inside out. They're not going to be bringing in, uh, aside from consulting, they're not going to be bringing in outsiders to grow and cultivate cannabis. They're going to be hiring citizens and encouraging business owners who want to be in this market and who also live in Trinidad or Tobago and are citizens there to make the step into the market, which I think is very interesting. And it's, um, it's interesting because it's somewhat in juxtaposition to what we have seen in the Canadian market in terms of when we discuss the new CEO of Canopy, who is an American who's going to be running Canopy Growth, which is a Canadian cannabis company, while cannabis is not federally legal in the U.S. So there's just some very interesting nuances going on here uh, where Trinidad and Tobago have said that they only will allow citizens to run these businesses. And whereas in Canada, we haven't had legislation like that. So from our perspective, it's fine for an American to come in and run a Canadian cannabis business. But is it okay for the citizen of that country? So is it okay for him to be doing that from the perspective of him being a U.S. citizen? We don't know. There's really been no legislation. There's been no discussion of anything of the sort. So it's very interesting to see as new markets come online, the nuances and differences between each one. And ultimately, a lot of what we've seen from Trinidad and Tobago and Bermuda's legislation is that it does trace back to Canada uh, because our legislation was set up by a government in the beginning, so it makes sense for another government to be considering that sort of legislation when making their decisions. And Cheryl, did you have anything you wanted to add in terms of the dynamics of a global cannabis industry or anything that we've discussed today? I'm just really looking forward to seeing it all unfold. It's a it's a really exciting time for, for cannabis growers that... Uh, that all of a sudden the whole world is on board with legalizing. And, and like you were saying about the gentleman from New York, we've all heard stories about people going back uh, or going across the border uh, between Canada and the U.S. and um, getting somebody getting stopped. And it comes to a point that they're involved, even as a, an investor in the stock market, and getting turned back. 
um, and not being allowed to come into the states. And so, I think the way that that can be for prevented is if they had a federal legislation in the U.S. that said, yes. but at this point, it's really just at the discretion of the officer who <laughs> happens to be at the window that day. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, journey to see it all unfold. It is going to be an interesting journey, and I'm enjoying watching it unfold. Me too. So until next week in our next episode, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, if you found it interesting, feel free to share it with someone else who's also interested in microcultivating or in the cannabis uh, industry globally in the U.S. or Canada. And if you have any questions, then feel free to reach out to us. We always love to engage uh, with any conversation around the subject of the cannabis industry. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, feel free to send an email to jewel at cwcultivations.com. That's C-W-C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N-S dot com.